Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. Each week, I present interviews with independent bookshop owners from around the globe, authors, and specialists in subjects dear to my heart the environment and social justice. To help the show reach more people, please share it with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 219. Laura Shepard Robinson has a Bachelor of Science in Politics from the University of Bristol and a Master's in Science in Political Theory from the London School of Economics. She worked in politics for nearly 20 years before entering normal life to complete an MA in Creative Writing at City University. Blood and Sugar, her first novel, won the Historical Writers Association Debut Crown and the Specsavers Debut Crime Novel Award, was a Waterstones Thriller of the Month and a Guardian and Telegraph Novel of the Year. Her second novel, Daughters of Night, was shortlisted for the Theakson's Crime Novel of the Year, the Goldsboro Glass Bell, the Capital Crime Fingerprint Historical Novel Award, and the Historical Writers Association Gold Crown. The book was also named a Book of the Year in The Times and The Guardian. Her third novel, The Square of Sevens, is a Sunday Times bestseller and is available from your local indie bookshop. Laura lives in London with her husband, Adrian. Hi, Laura, and welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading your new book, The Square of Sevens. In fact, it's made me want to go back and read your other books. Thank you. Before we chat about your books, I would like to learn more about you and your work in politics before switching to writing. Yes, um, I did politics at university, and um, I was always very interested in um, politics and big political ideas, and I... um, I went to work for the British Labour Party when um, Tony Blair was Prime Minister and I worked for them for a long time and eventually I was getting a little bit fed up with it all. Just just I'd been doing it too long and I'd always had in the back of my mind for a very long time this little nugget of an idea that um, one day maybe I'd see if I could write a novel. And so, yeah, just one day I decided to get on my computer and see what I could do. Um, And it proved to be a great decision because uh, I love this job. It makes me feel good when I hear people say, I love my job. It's like magic to my ears. Yeah, completely. And for a while, did you write while you were still working? Yes, for for a little while. And I I went and I did a, um, I actually did an MA in creative writing. Yes, I saw that at City University. Yeah. And I, so while I was doing my MA, I was also doing sort of uh, working part-time. I was doing speech writing and things for people I knew from my politics days. Um, uh, Cause I'd always loved the writing side of my job. So it wasn't too hard a transition. Yeah. City University popped out at me because my daughter-in-law teaches a course there in creative writing. And I've actually done a few classes for her on book publishing. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's a wonderful university and they have great professors in their creative writing program. 
Yeah, and the, the creative writing programs there are so good and the journalism courses are really good. Yes, I've heard good things about the journalism courses too. Let's talk about your books, because like your previous novels, Blood and Sugar and Daughters of the Night, your new novel, The Square of Sevens, is historical fiction, which I love. What draws you to this genre? So I've always been fascinated by history, and I'd always read an awful lot of uh, of historical nonfiction throughout my life because um, I'm just very interested in it. And I remember um, I was reading a lot of books about the English Civil War in the 17th century, and I I'd sort of been struggling to get my head a bit around. Um, obviously, you, you know, you can read the facts, you can read about the battles, you can read about the, the philosophical ideas behind it all. But I felt like I was kind of missing the emotion that drove people to fight their own families, their own brothers, to, um, to, to take up arms for the king. And I happened to one day be in a bookshop and I picked up a novel um, called the, An Instance of the Finger Post, which was set during that period. And it was such an eye-opener for me because I I kind of understood that thing that I would be missing from my from my nonfiction reading, which was I was living and breathing with these characters. I was feeling what they were feeling, and I felt like I understood the, those forces that had driven the, the English Civil War. And it was it's not to say that nonfiction can't do that. There are some great writers in nonfiction that can do it, but I think that. Fiction, when it's written well, historical fiction can really bring a new understanding to our to our comprehension of history, but also do it at the same time as delivering a wonderful story. When historical fiction is is written well, a story that simply couldn't take place at another in another time and a place that is that is directly born out of that historical experience. And so, those are the kind of novels that I I try to write, and and I love it. It's um it's so much fun. Yes, I agree with what you said about reading nonfiction and getting the facts. I feel strongly that reading fiction, well-written fiction, helps us develop empathy. Yeah, completely. I read nonfiction and fiction, nonfiction specifically when I'm researching or I want to find out more about a topic. But there's something about fiction that puts you in another person's point of view and helps you experience their emotions, how they perceive events, how they cope with events and emotions. I just think that's so important, more so now than ever. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. It's it's something about that ability to transport you into the mind of another character and and to be to be experiencing often scenarios that are quite alien to us as modern day readers, but that we completely understand because we're seeing the world through that character's eyes. And I think that's an, a, a real ability that um, fiction possesses. Yes, I agree. Uh, in your introduction to The Square of Sevens, Atria senior editor Caitlin Olson writes, quote, The Square of Sevens is an immersive, masterful sleight of hand taking place across the Cornish countryside, the elegant drawing rooms of Bath, the Bartholomew Fair, one of the greatest mansions in London, a crowded courtroom, and an estate in Devon. The novel unfolds with cinematic clarity and rich historical detail. End quote. I agree with Olson's use of the word immersive 
because from the first paragraph, one can't help but get swept into Red's world. How deeply do you research before putting your fingers on the keyboard or pen to paper? And do you continue researching while writing? So I'm quite familiar by now. Have This is my third novel set in the 18th century. So I'm kind of quite familiar with the general period, the, the, the day-to-day aspects of life um, at that time. But my my novels are always about something beyond the plot. So, you know, in, in the case of The Square of Sevens, it's um, about magic and superstition in the age of the Enlightenment. And so obviously I read around whatever topic I'm 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 grappling with in 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 the in the novel. Um so I, I read, you know, kind of not not hugely like sort of two or three books on the particular subject until um I feel like I have the sort of grounding to be able to tell that story. And then there are usually a few plot specific things that I need to research. So in the case of this book, it was Bath, where I hadn't set a novel before, Georgian Bath, and also the Bartholomew Fair, which is a big setting for the second part of the book. They were really the only, you know, the sort of cover-to-cover research that I did at the beginning. Then I usually start, when I feel I've I've got enough to plot the book and, and start writing. So once I've done that, there's always little things that I need to research along the way. Um, and I have quite a big library now of books about the 18th century. And there's also quite a lot of great primary sources online now that you can that you can access. And so I do research as I go along, but only really as much as I need to get the story down. And then at the end, I will go back and I'll add some colour and check, double check things and all that, all that kind of thing. And I also have maps, lots of maps, um, because I think it's really important to to get that sense of place. I mean, not least because we still we still live in those places. They've changed, but we still live in them. And I think one of one of the things that my readers often contact me about, particularly with London and how how London grew, is they find it fascinating that the areas where they might live now were then open countryside and to get a sense of that development of the city is something people are really interested in. So I always try very hard to do justice to that. And there are fantastic apps now available where you can plug in the year, the city, the area that you want to explore, and you can virtually walk down a street as it was in the 1800s. I've spent hours exploring centuries past and areas. It's just fascinating to me. It's very cool, yeah. In the Square of Sevens, you bring up the Bartholomew Fair, which has a long history and is featured in Ben Johnson's play, Bartholomew Fair, and Daniel Defoe's Mole Flanders. It has been the setting for historical writings and fits perfectly into the Square of Sevens. Were you aware of the long history of the fair before you began writing the book, from a cloth fair to a carnival, to the soiled doves of Cock Lane? I wonder who came up with that title. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So I was aware of the Bartholomew Fair and I knew that it was a, it was a huge fair that was set on it was held every year on the site of the Smithfield meat market. That was about all all I knew. Um and also, you know, some of the literary references that you that you've just said, but I didn't really quite kind of get a sense of the world of the fair and um and there I discovered some great books you know mostly out of print now but you could you know you can find them in secondhand bookshops they're all about 
the stools and the plays and and you know the bizarre things that they that they had there the very early fairground rides that sound like a health and safety catastrophe waiting to happen and um uh, you know things like a, a dogs that played dominoes supposedly and you know they had elephants and tigers on display there all sorts of amazing stools and and of course fortune telling which was uh, my character red as you know she she tells fortunes uh, in the in the bartholomew fair and that was at a time when fortune telling had become illegal so there was the the added th- threat of the constables patrolling the fair so um, I loved the idea of immersing Red in that kind of seductive and yet dangerous world. Yes, and that leads me on to another of your characters, who you portrayed so well, the lookout at the Bartholomew Fair. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, Meg. Yeah. Yeah, you show us that she's disfigured, and then the story comes out as to why she's disfigured. And little things like this happen throughout the book, which make it a little more magical to read, and also gives us a taste of the reality of life during that time. Thank you. Uh, Now, your novel features women protagonists, strong of will and curious, for example, Caro in Daughters of the Night and Red in The Square of Sevens. Now, is Red based on a real person, someone from history? And is there a little bit of you in her persona? That's a good question. Um, she's not based. Some of my characters are but are based on characters from history um, or they are amalgams of people, real people from history. Red um, isn't beyond the fact that there were young women telling fortunes at that time. It, Older men did it, but so did younger women and indeed older women. And so, you know, I like to make sure something's kind of plausible within the world of of the novel. But actually, as a character, she is largely an invention. There's a little bit of my niece in there who's she's a bit younger than than Red in most of the story. But she's she's definitely got that kind of insight into people that I that Red has, although she's nowhere near as bad as Red is in terms of her kind of tricksiness. Um, uh, definitely more like my younger niece there. In a, in a world that often doesn't want women to speak their, young women to speak their minds, that they often see a lot. And, and Red is a character of great perception um and and is very good at reading people and i think that's a skill that um, a lot of younger women have actually so so in that respect uh, she was kind of drawn from experience i think the observing skill is innate in creatives uh specifically writers you know nothing's safe right <laughs> yeah <laughs> like little magpies stealing stealing details yes exactly The Square of Sevens is a hefty novel weaving in and out of two families, two men and multiple locations. Did you follow Red to these locations or did she follow you? That's a good question. I think The Square of Sevens was my lockdown book and it was largely written in lockdown, although I had the very sort of inkling of the idea just before. And I think that definitely shaped the book it became I you know I live in a one bedroom flat in London it was an like everybody else my world got narrower in lockdown smaller and narrower and I think that I responded to that by writing bigger by writing a a novel that moved around from place to place in a way that I I couldn't like the rest of the world and so read 
read traveled and read saw people and things and and met a huge cast of different people and and I'm sure that that was in part a product of of being in lockdown even if at the time I didn't necessarily think that um and I think also it it affected the tone of the book as well I think it became more fun and tricksy and magical um partly probably as a response to the world being quite unknown and scary and uh and and quite a dark place at times um and I think I definitely um sought to lighten my life by by writing this book and so in that respect I think Red followed me but at the same time Red is was very determined and she definitely went her own way and uh and demanded that I follow her at times as well so I think I think we were leading each other yeah it sounds like her voice was loud at times she definitely did yeah <laughs> and getting back to my earlier thoughts uh or what the Atria senior editor Caitlin Olson wrote about the book being immersive it definitely is. And that is how I felt about Red's character. As a reader, you can't help but be immersed in her being, what she sees, what she does, how she acts. It's quite unique. Thank you. Okay, now let's talk about publishing. I'd love to hear your publishing story from your first finished manuscript to finding an agent and publisher. So I wrote the first manuscript um, that I wrote was while I was doing my MA in creative writing. And it was one of those MAs where you have to produce the first draft of a novel uh, at the end of the course. So for me, I'm a bit of a I'm a, a bit of a perfectionist. I I tinker with my drafts a lot until I'm happy with them. And and I think that the course was really good for me in that respect because it made me finish. I had to finish. I couldn't pass the course unless I handed in a draft. So, so I wrote this draft, and and it wasn't the greatest draft in the world, but there was a there was a competition, like a prize attached to the course, and I won the prize. And the prize offered representation with an agent as part of the prize. And that actually gave me a bit of confidence. I actually didn't end up signing with that agent. I sent it to another agent who had I'd met previously. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I, I got an agent and I reworked the draft for about a year. I rewrote it pretty much top to bottom. And then my agent submitted that draft to publishers and it was it was lovely. We had like a little auction for the book and, um, and my, now my publisher, my editor, who's a woman called Maria Rate, she just loved the book. And, and I really liked her from the start because she, I, she published, she was the editor for CJ Sansom, who writes sort of historical crime novels set in Tudor times. And I'd, I'd loved his books for a long time. And they're very successful, um, certainly in the UK. And so I thought she would be the perfect editor for the book. So I had no hesitation in signing with her. And, and it's been very, I've had a very lovely um, publishing experience in the UK, but this is the first of my books to be published in the US, which is absolutely wonderful, thrilling thing to happen. So I'm really, really hoping to get some new readers. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you will. Well, it sounds like your publishing journey was fairly smooth. It wasn't too crazy. No, it wasn't actually. Um, I mean, I the one thing I would say is that I 
do an awful lot. Like I, I am a huge critic of myself. So I didn't send my book out to agents a long time after most of my contemporaries were sending books out and getting agents and getting, I wanted to make that book as good as I could possibly make it. I don't, I'm not saying that that's a sensible thing to do, but uh, I suspect if I had submitted it earlier, when I was a less good writer, I would have had more difficulty finding an agent and potentially more difficulty finding a publisher. So it was quite easy when I got there, but there was an awful lot of work that had already gone in behind it, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And how long did you spend on that first novel? I just trying to think. I think altogether it was it took about two years to write, but I did I did do some work on it prior to that in sort of planning and things. So maybe a few months researching and planning in addition to that. But it took about two years to write. But most of my books still do. I, I you know, certainly the three I have written all took about two years to write, which I think is a combination of research, quite complicated plots, and also the length of the books. So so it's a bit of a bit of a combination. Personally, I love the anticipation of waiting maybe a year, maybe two years for another book to be written and published by an author whose work I enjoy reading. I actually think that's fine. I mean, let's face it, there are so many talented writers out there. We can fill uh, that void of waiting for the our favorite author's next book with another favorite author's next book. Yeah. In many facets of our lives, I think we have become in need of instant gratification. I want this book delivered tomorrow, so I'm going to order it online, uh, rather than go to your local indie bookshop and have that conversation and be excited when you get that call that the book has arrived if it's not already in the bookshop. I think it's fun waiting for a new release from an author whose books you enjoy reading to come out. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I think that I would much rather wait two years for a really, really good book than a year and have something that I, an author has had to produce very fast. And I, I'm very fortunate because my publisher does give me the space to to do that although actually having said that I'm right the one I'm writing at the moment is much I'm, I'm getting through that quite quickly at the moment touch wood because I it's uh you know it takes as long as it takes is my attitude I, I yeah yes absolutely I completely agree with you and I believe in honoring the creative process no matter how long it takes as you say okay let's talk books what are you currently reading so I'm currently reading, uh, terrible with titles, I can't remember though, but it's my friend Chris Whitaker, who is a crime author, he wrote a, a wonderful book called We Begin at the End, which was a big hit in America, actually, it sold an awful lot of copies, but he his new one, I've got a proof for, so I'm reading that at the moment. Um, and I'm also reading, so I, I've... A, done an, a short story my first short story that I've ever written was for an anthology of historical ghost stories called the winter spirits and it's 12 historical writers and our brief was it had to be historical it had to have a connection to Christmas because it's coming out at Christmas and so I'm reading the stories that my 11 other authors uh, fellow historical authors wrote and really enjoying seeing what very very different things that 12 writers have done with this same brief is quite interesting. I bet it is. 
How about you? What are you reading? I've just finished yours, which I loved. A new one that I'm just about to start is The Lioness of Boston by Emily Franklin. It is the story of Isabella Stewart Gardner, who opened her Italian palazzo-style home as a museum in 1903 in Boston. And it's reading beautifully. I'm also reading Saving Democracy, a user's manual for every American by David Pepper. And please unsubscribe thanks how to take back our time, attention and purpose in a world designed to bury us in bullshit. (laughs) That's by Giulio Vincent Gambuto. And I'm also reading All You Have to Do is Call, the new book by Kerry Mayer. She wrote The Paris Bookseller. Uh, Boy, it's a really strong book. Because I get books sent to me from publishers pretty much daily, my stack of to-be-read books is always at 24. <laughs> so it's a little frustrating, but it's it's good. I'm, I feel very lucky to be able to read these books for the Bookshop podcast and also for the Lunch with an Author series, which is held up at El Encanto, a Belmont hotel in Santa Barbara. It's absolutely gorgeous. Oh, I, I've always wanted to go to that hotel. I know the one you mean. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, you have a couple of beautiful Belmont hotels in the UK. Well, Laura, if you're planning a trip to the United States, let me know and you can spend a few days at El Encanto and I'll schedule you for the Lunch with an Author series. Oh, I will. We have this dream, me and my husband, that we're going to do the Pacific Coast Highway. And so if ever we do that, then I will I will give you a chance. Please do. Just give me advance warning so I can schedule you in. <laughs> fantastic. (laughs) Laura, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And I love your new novel, The Square of Sevens. It's beautifully written and a great tale. Thank you so much. And let me know when you have another book out and we'll have you back on the show. I will. And I would love to be back. Thank you very much. It was really nice to meet you. And I'll uh, speak to you soon. Bye. You've been listening to my conversation with author Laura Shepard-Robinson about her new book, The Square of Sevens. To find out more about The Bookshop Podcast, go to thebookshoppodcast.com and make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to the show. You can also follow me at Mandy Jackson Beverly on X, Instagram and Facebook and on YouTube at The Bookshop Podcast. If you have a favorite indie bookshop that you'd like to suggest we have on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you via the contact form at thebookshoppodcast.com. The Bookshop Podcast is written and produced by me, Mandy Jackson-Beverly. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly, executive assistant to Mandy, Adrian Otterhan, and graphic design by Francis Varala. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.